0: My name is Velma Vouloir, and you are listening to Controversy. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Look, we have a nice tidy little one part episode for you today, which is a slight shift from our last three episodes, which I'm imagining some of you will possibly be Excited about something short and sharp. I know a big long series is not for everyone. Something short and sharp and sweet for you this time around. But also, look, thank you. Thank you so much to every single one of you for all the positive feedback and really wonderful words of encouragement over our Betty Page series. I mentioned it in earlier episodes, you know, doing the research and writing this and recording and editing those episodes really was (laughs) a feat for me. Definitely a labor of love. So I really appreciate people acknowledging the time that that took. So thank you for that. I've received some really touching emails and messages about how much you're enjoying the return of the podcast, which really puts a pep in my step. You know, it really does keep me going. I suppose the burden of doing a podcast on your own is that the only indication you have that people are actually out there listening is the download stats I get sent every week so I know you're out there and I know you're listening but sometimes it definitely does feel like you're just speaking into this great big void of sorts so we love some reciprocation so please if you ever do have anything you'd like to share or anything you'd like to say to me, please just do it. I won't think it's weird. And a lot of people do start their emails and messages with, sorry, if this is weird, sorry, if reaching out is weird. It's not weird. It's never weird. I don't think it's weird. I absolutely... Love it, and I want more of it, so please make me feel less alone in this world. (laughs) Please, Um, yeah, keep that up. I love it, more of that always. Thank you, please, please and thank you. I'm just trying to think if I want to catch you up on anything that's been going on in my life. You know what? I've been up to some pretty great shit lately that isn't work-related. I actually surprised my baby sister with some VIP Blink 182 tickets last week which I have been keeping a secret for nearly 2 years now and holy shit that gig was phenomenal like truly phenomenal. (laughs) I have been waiting to see those guys live since I was about nine years old. (laughs) So it really was a dream come true. My sis and I had the best night of our lives. I can't say that on her behalf. You know, I'm sure maybe bringing her two children into the world and, you know, maybe getting married and whatever is the best night of her life. But I'm just going to make that choice for her because it was one of the best nights of my life. So, yeah, it was just incredible. And also, quick, not so humble brag guess who got one of Tom DeLong's guitar picks? This bitch. Me. I did. What the fuck? So yeah, feel free to hate me for that. I completely understand. I would hate me too. It just feels like one of those little teenage groupie dreams coming true. (laughs) Uh, I am going to frame it somewhere. I'm going to put it somewhere in my house so that everyone that comes over has to look at it and be jealous. And... I also maybe partied a little too hard that night and maybe suffered immensely the next day. (laughs) Um, Oh my god, I haven't been hungover like that in a long time. I legitimately thought I was going to die. Look, hangovers... Like real, real big hangovers, they hit different in your 30s. And it honestly took me all week to feel (laughs) even a little bit okay again, but you know what? Worth it, worth it a hundred times over. Uh, This weekend as well, I'm heading off to Gay Times Festival. So for anyone else who is going, come find me and say hi. For those that aren't familiar with Gay Times Festival, it is a super amazing queer femme-run festival in Nam, or just outside of Nam, out in Gembrook. And I'll be performing there a couple of times with SMART, uh, which if you haven't heard of SMART, it is the greatest show ever. It's produced by Juniper Fox. It is a sex worker prioritized cast. It is the queer strip club of of my dreams, and I lose my mind every single time I get to be a part of it. And every single time I go as well as a punter, it is just the best show. So, yeah, that's what I'll be up to this weekend. So, working, yes, but also just getting amongst the beautiful events happening at Gay Times over the weekend. So, yeah, looking forward to seeing a few people there, maybe. Yeah, so if you are based in Victoria and you hear this and you're going, let me know. I think. Let's talk a little about this week's episode. Let's get into some controversial history, some cunty controversial history, shall we? So today's episode, this is one for the artists amongst us. It is one for the lovers. It is one for the fashionistas of the universe. Today, we are going to be talking about A woman who in the early 20th century reached a status of legend of goddess like worship and incomprehensible notoriety who lived a life so insane and wild and so drenched in hedonism and debauchery that the echoes of her existence have rippled down through the decades and can still be felt and seen to this very day. We are looking at the life of the Marquesa Luisa Cassati. Now let me tell you, if you ever wander through life feeling like Things are a little bit vanilla, a little stale, perhaps. If you ever have just that little craving to be just a little bit more extra or give, you know, less fucks about what others think about you. Let this woman be your saint. Let her be your guide. Let her inspire the absolute shit out of you right now, because the life that this woman led is incredible. So the key source for today's episode is the book Infinite Variety, uh, which is by Scott D. Ryerson and Michael Orlando Yachirino and was published back in 1999. And it is still currently the only available biography of Louisa Casati's life that's available in English and it's such a good read I highly recommend it if you'd like to learn as much as possible about Louisa Casati yeah and then there are some other sources as well I will write those in the show notes for you so if you want to go digging you absolutely can all right so buckle up let's do this now, Luisa Casati was born, Luisa Adela Rosa Maria Aman, in Milan, Italy, on January 23rd, 1881. She's born a day after me, hey fellow Aquarius, and look, looking at this woman's life, that absolutely checks out. <laughs> she was born in 1881 to a very very wealthy family. So sorry to say uh, this is absolutely not a rags to riches story. I feel like I have to acknowledge that this is not so much a story of a woman overcoming crazy odds and coming out on top. This is a hundred percent a tale of nepotism. This is a tale of a silver spoon fed upper echelon socialite. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but still it's still fantastic. So her father, a man called Alberto Aman, he had inherited his family's business in the textiles industry they were absolutely huge in producing cotton textiles and other textiles and distributing them all over europe and her mother was an austrian socialite who came from a really well-to-do family as well so we have money we have money we have status and just quickly in terms of where we are socially politically in italy at the time of Louisa's birth So at the time of her parents' birth, Northern Italy was still a part of the Austrian empire. So they had gone through the Italian Wars of Independence, which ended in 1861, and those wars resulted in the unification of Italy as its own kingdom. This created a lot of financial opportunity in business and trade, which the Amman family really capitalized on, so much so that Louise's father was actually made a count by King Umberto, who was the king of Italy. In English, we would say Louisa's parents were a count and countess, but we're in Italy. So they'd be the Comte and contessa. The point being, once again, they were rich as fuck. They were some of the richest people in the country and were very, very much nobility. So Louisa was born into this incredibly wealthy yet also very conservative life. She did have one older sister, Francesca, who was only a year older than herself. Now, societal expectations for these two sisters were very much oriented around marrying well, being good wives of Italian nobility and producing heirs for their rich husbands. Louisa did receive an education. She was educated privately inside the family's estate and in a way that was very typical for girls and women of the time. Not so much maths and science, Science and politics, very much more writing, decorum, needlework, music lessons, things like that. In 1894, when Louisa was only 13, her mother died. And then only two years later, right when her and her sister Francesca are beginning to be presented to society as debutantes and into the marriage market, her father also passes away. So we have these two teenage orphans and the death of their parents, makes Louisa and Francesca sole heirs to this humongous family fortune and instantly makes them the richest women in the whole of Italy. And yes, I know I just said women and I know that they're actually teenagers, but this is 1800s Europe. They were absolutely women, you know, young women to be married. Just in case you thought I had some kind of opinion that a 15 year old is a fully fledged adult. (laughs) I'm in my 30s and I'm not a fully-fledged adult, so rest assured. Anyway, so, Louisa and Francesca, they were both single, they were both unmarried at the time of their parents' death, and they are suddenly wealthy as fuck. They are so rich. So, of course, the suitors come filing in. That line was wrapping around the block and everyone wanted to marry these two girls. And I suppose, just quickly to try to paint a little visual for you of Louisa. Louisa was absolutely not what you would call a conventional beauty of those times. She was incredibly tall. She was six feet tall. She was extremely thin and waif-like, with these humongous green, wide-set eyes. Everyone always talks about her eyes. She had this reddish-brown hair, thick, dark brows, and a really angular bone structure. We've got cheekbones and jawlines for days happening with Louisa. She would have absolutely killed it as a model in the 1990s, like 100%. But this is not that. We are 1800s where conventional beauty standards were very much about being, you know, soft and delicate and petite. Louisa had this intrinsic severity to her that is really striking. I've been trying to think who she looks like. There, There's a photograph of her as a young woman as a teenager and it sort of gives me i can't think of the actress's name but it gives me daphne bridgerton vibes yeah daphne bridgerton vibes but italian you know darker features and that's probably a terrible reference mostly because i'm outing myself right now as someone who's seen (laughs) bridgerton um but that's what i'm getting (laughs) Guilty as charged, okay? We've all seen it. We all went through lockdown. We've all seen Bridgerton. But yeah, maybe maybe even a little bit of Gemma Ward. Yeah, she has those really big, wide-set eyes. But then there's also kind of like a Tilda Swinton bone structure happening as well. Yeah, that's what I'm getting. So... Okay, in 1900, turn of the century, at the age of 19, Louisa joined into a family of suitable nobility and of course wealth when she married the Marchese Casari Stampa di Soncino and thus marrying the Marchese became herself a Marchesa, which would be the equivalent of a Marquess if we're talking about the English version. Yeah, Marquis Marquess, which I believe, I'm 99% sure I'm right on this, it's one nobility ranking below being a duchess so that's pretty high up she's she's got some status points with that one so she's gone from being the daughter of a count to becoming a marquess herself she did the thing she did what she was expected to do she married well she ticked that box and then just over a year later she became a mother to her only child she had a daughter named maria christina who to be honest really (laughs) really doesn't enter into this story much at all. In fact, Maria Cristina doesn't enter into the story at all. Maria Cristina was really raised by the household of the Soncinos and she didn't really have a whole lot to do with either of her parents for most of her life. Yeah, we definitely don't have Louisa coming in as this maternal, loving parental figure. So Louisa, after becoming the dutiful wife, after marrying well and becoming a mother and doing all the things that she was expected to do as a woman of her time, she got a little bored. What do rich people do when they're bored? They start fucking around. (laughs) They start having affairs and that is exactly what she did in 1903. At 22, she met the man that would set her on her path to notoriety and began a wild love affair with a man named Gabriele D'Annunzio, who is known by many as Italy's prince of decadence. He's best known as being an author and being a key literary figure in the decadent movement of literature, which for those that aren't aware, because they didn't suffer through four years of literary history in university like I did. (laughs) So, the decadence literature movement, it kind of intertwines with the modernist literary movement. And I suppose, yeah, if we're just looking at mentality and attitude shifts of these two movements so, modernism and decadence, they were aiming to steer away from the naturalist literary movement, which was kind of all about logic and structure and natural order. And it speaks a lot about class systems. Whereas decadence and modernism, the philosophies and ideologies of these movements really simmered on ideas of things like Progression and hedonism and spirituality, and often the occult. You know, it was about indulging and indulging in ideas that were just a little bit out of reach. It was about pushing these ideas of living in a world of one's own making. You know, it's this idea that you can be anyone that you want to be, even if it means kind of faking it until you make it. Straight off the top of my head, a modernist book or story that I think a lot of people would know of would be something like The Great Gatsby. That's the sort. Of literature that you get out of that decadent modernist movement. I've just gone on a rant. I am sorry. <laughs> I do that sometimes. And I've probably explained that terribly. But anyway, uh, my point is Louisa falls in love with Denunzio and Denuncio really became the great love of Louisa's life, despite that the two both had many, many other lovers. They were By no means a monogamous couple. They spent a lot of time away from each other, but would always keep in touch, would always come back to each other. And Denunzio really was the one that exposed her to this philosophy of decadence. So Louisa never left her husband. She never divorced her husband, although they began living really separate lives. They lived in separate homes and eventually they were entirely estranged from one another, but they always stayed Legally married, divorce was not something that Italian nobility were doing very much, but this separation, it was absolutely fine because Louisa had her own money. She didn't have the issue that so many women faced where if they divorced their husbands or left their husbands, they would be out on their own. They would have no prospects and no financial independence. Louisa did not have that problem. And so through this love affair with Denuncio and the company he kept, Louisa soon became obsessed with just living her best life. Being this free woman and she decided that she just wanted to be surrounded by beauty. She wanted to be surrounded by art. She wanted to be surrounded by insanity and spirituality and just pure debauchery, quite frankly. So from here on out, we see this kind of transformation of Louisa into this wild priestess of fashion and excess. And it's not to say that she completely changed her character. You know, I think this longing for independence and creativity and sensuality, I think that's something that would have already existed within her. But she found this mechanism to really just unleash it onto the world. And she unleashed it in a very excessive way her singular desire in life according to louisa herself was to become immortal she wanted to have it all she wanted to live forever so for the next two decades louisa would become renowned as being the most scandalous woman in the whole of europe and as well as being this scandalized socialite she was also a patron a muse and a lover of the 21st century's greatest artists. In 1910, Louisa purchased and took up residence at the Palazzo Venier de Leone on Grand Canal in Venice. And a few years later, she also purchased the Villa San Michele on the island of Capri. Now, these homes, oh my God, these opulent palatial homes became the focal point of Louisa's infamous soirees and balls and parties. Louisa had this obsession with the exotic, her homes were these otherworldly portals, rooms were draped in silks and velvets and marble, with fixtures of solid gold and precious gemstones set into the corners of every single room. Her staff would often be dressed in these elaborate costumes or they would be completely naked and painted head to toe in gold paint. Louisa had wild exotic birds and animals just roaming through the grounds of these residences and there was a never ending supply of the finest food, the finest booze and the finest illicit substances on offer for anyone who chose to party with Louisa Casati. Louisa's custom couture clothing and jewelry was an absolute revelation during the Belle Epoque era of of turn-of-the-century Europe. Louisa dazzled her guests in these insane outfits. Her costumes, her attire was just something that had never been seen before. And she would traipse around the palazzo in these slinky gowns made of silk with couture beadwork and fringe. Her necklines would be cut down to her navel. Her splits would be to the top of her thigh. This is 1915. This is truly outrageous for the time. Louisa dyed her hair this copper orange, this fiery bright orange. She cut her hair short into this bob. She wore it in this loose mass of wild curls, which again at the time just was not done. She powdered her face this porcelain white... She stained her lips, this claret red color. She charcoaled her eyes and she wore these excessive layers of false eyelashes. And sometimes she would even glue pieces of lace and silk to her eyes. Like a regular falsie was not enough. She was like, I need two inches of lace on my eyelashes. And then she would also glue polished precious jewels to her face as well, sticking diamonds and sapphires over her eyelids. This signature style, again, it was a revelation. It was insane. And it reinforced her image as being this complete enigma. It made her truly one of a kind and it really created this, image of her as this truly uninhibited free woman you know through her sense of dress she intentionally excluded herself from being seen as a regular woman she excluded herself from those societal expectations of the time and of course because this is a scandal because a woman is doing whatever the fuck she wants and is dressing in these absolutely insane ways she started making headlines all over Europe and all over the world actually and men Many have suggested that Louisa Casati directly influenced the creation of the flapper girl of 1920s fashion. Louisa was the original. When you think of the fashion of the 1920s, deco fashions with lace and velvet and beading, shorter dresses, showing more skin, the hairstyles, the bobs, Louisa was doing it before anyone else was. She was also one of the key influences of what we would call the Hollywood vamp with those early Hollywood actresses, those silent film stars, women such as Theda Barra or Clara Bow or Louise Brooks. Yeah, they're our OG Hollywood vamps. And they were all just mimicking that iconic style of Louisa Casati. Louisa treated her body like a canvas to showcase her newest masterpieces. She commissioned bespoke jewelry from Lalique and custom couture from houses such as Fortuny, Poiret, Erté, and Coco Chanel directly. She was often seen walking along the canals of Venice completely naked, all but for a fur coat and high heels, wearing a live python around her neck as a scarf, and walking one of her many panthers and cheetahs on leashes with their own diamond encrusted collars. I mean, can you think of anything else in the world that is more of a vibe than that. (laughs) And while I don't condone the use of wild animals as pets, it's such a great visual. (laughs) While this is all incredibly opulent and, to be honest, it feels like something out of Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut or something, something that is really important to acknowledge and something that is one of my favorite things about Louisa Casati's history is that she also became something of a Dionysian goddess to those who had nowhere else to go. She became this patron saint of Outcasts, and particularly those that belonged to the queer community. Gay men and women, trans and non binary people who had been rejected by their families and communities, they all found safety and refuge in the walls of Louise's homes. And in these beautiful villas and palazzos, these people could exist freely. They could finally live fully and connect to those who shared their dreams of living without persecution and criminal charges, which, of course, to to be gay at the turn of the century was a criminal offense. So, whilst there is a lot of stories about, you know, Louisa's life being all about the visual and just being all about this superficial existence, there is this incredible heart to this story and she really fought for the right to exist as you are. Again, it does belong into that philosophy of modernism and decadence and progressive ideology. But yeah, imagine, imagine just being in this humongous palazzo just full of beautiful queer bohemians. And anytime the law would come looking for someone, they would be hidden and protected under Louisa's care. And Louisa was herself queer. Louisa took countless lovers of all genders and supported hundreds of bohemians both emotionally and also of course financially louisa Casati was one of the greatest patrons of the arts in the early 20th century she funded infinite works of writing theater art photography and sculpture and she became the muse she became muse and model to artists such as Erte, Man Ray, Salvador Dali, Cecil Beaton, Jean Cocteau, and Adolf de Meyer. It was said that by the 1920s, the only other women in history who had been captured as much as Louisa Casati were Cleopatra and the Virgin Mary. Louisa Casari is also credited with being the inspiration for Cartier's legendary panther symbol. When it was created, it was made to represent the idea of the daring feminine and the emancipation of women. The panther is, of course, a direct nod to Louisa's fondness of large cats, of her many pet large cats and the precious emeralds set into each Cartier piece into the eyes of the panther were representative of Louisa's own green eyes, which I've mentioned before, but her eyes are just that thing that everyone keeps coming back to. All of the art, all of the photographs that you see of Louisa, her eyes just stand out like nothing else. She has this piercing gaze and these huge green eyes. So every time you see that Cartier panther... I mean, I don't personally own one, wouldn't that be nice? But if you're ever walking past Cartier and you see that panther, you see the beautiful green emeralds in those panther's eyes, you just say a little hello to Louisa Casati. Now, (laughs) like many of life's tales of excess, both fictional and true, much like the myth of Icarus, much like the picture of Dorian Gray, Louisa Casati's story too would fall into ruin and tragedy. Despite being one of the richest women in Italy, by 1930, Louisa had amassed a financial debt of. Okay, wait for it. Think about debt for a second. Think about what a lot of debt would be. Have a guess of a number. (laughs) Louisa's debt was over $35 million dollars. Louisa, come on, honey. Can you imagine? That is so much money. And I have no idea how it got to that point. I suppose when you're rich to begin with, people just give you an open line of credit and they just assume you're good for it, maybe. But yeah, Louisa clearly had zero concept of when to slow down. Or, you know what? Maybe she did know when to slow down and she just didn't care. She was like, fuck it. You only live once. Let's just... Let's just run this thing until it explodes. Um, And that's what she did. And Louisa, unable to escape creditors, knocking on her door, demanding this money, she fled. She had to run away. She fled to London with just a handful of possessions and jewels. And she took up in this tiny little one bedroom apartment. And she was sort of exiled here. She couldn't actually go back to Italy because then she would have to face the consequences of her immense spending. So meanwhile, while she's in this little London apartment, her luxurious homes and their entire contents were slowly sold off piece by piece by her creditors in a bid to recoup her debts. Coco Chanel is said to have purchased many of the contents of the Palazzo Vigna de Leone. However, the Palazzo was notorious for being just this living art gallery. The walls were just top to bottom full of this incredible artwork by these amazing artists. Many of them were portraits and representations of Louisa herself. So there's supposed to be all of this incredible art in these Palazzo's. However, over a hundred pieces of this priceless art that once hung the walls of Louise's estate were never found or accounted for. And that is a mystery that actually remains to this day. And art history is something that fascinates me and I... I'm forever obsessed when something goes missing and no one knows where it is. And it just makes me think if you have family in Venice or Italy, maybe, you know, just go and check out the art that's on the walls of your grandma's lounge room or I don't know, hidden up in the attic somewhere because you never know. You might have a priceless Montenegro just hanging up there and no one would know any different. So I think that's really fucking cool. (laughs) Any story where there's like secret mystery art or treasure, sign me up, I'm all about it. So throughout the 1940s and 1950s, Louisa, still in London, she became something of this ghoul that was roaming the streets and alleys of London. She was often seen rummaging through bins and rubbish piles. Uh, not for food, but for scraps of fabric or feathers to adorn her body. She was in her 60s. She was so thin, just roaming the streets in her tattered furs and silks. And you think, what about her family? What about Denuncio? What about all of these people that cared about her? Well, tragically, they just cut her off. She wrote so many letters to her family. And to denuncio requesting financial help and they just went unanswered denuncio just ghosted her basically and so slowly louisa just succumbed to the effects of poverty to aging to alcoholism and to depression in 1957 louisa died of a stroke at age 76 she was buried in london wearing her finest remaining clothes and her signature false eyelashes. And she was also actually buried with one of her Pekingese dogs who had died years before, but she'd had it stuffed. She'd had it taxidermied to keep him around. So he was also buried with Louisa. And a memorial sculpture sits on top of her final resting place where her name is actually incorrectly spelled. It's spelled in the English way. It's spelled L O U I -S S A. Rather than the Italian way, she spelt her name L-U-I-S-A, which is just a bit shit. (laughs) I would like my name spelt properly on my tombstone, you know. And then underneath this memorial sculpture, uh, her niece actually inscribed it with Shakespeare's words from his play Antony and Cleopatra. And the inscription reads, age cannot wither her, nor custom stale her infinite variety. Luisa's Venetian Palazzo was purchased by Peggy Guggenheim in 1947. Peggy Guggenheim, as in, yes, like the Guggenheim Museum, where it's still there now. It's open to the public. It's an incredible gallery. It is now one of Venice's most loved galleries and tourist attractions. So if you're ever in Venice, please go and see the Peggy Guggenheim collection and know that when you are walking down those halls that you are in the once residence of Louisa Casati. Louisa's legacy continued long after her financial demise and her death with actresses like Vivian Lee and Ingrid Bergman playing roles based on Louisa in both La Contessa and A Matter of Time. However, her most notable touch is 100% in the fashion world. In 1998, John Galliano based his spring summer Christian Dior collection on Louisa Casati. If you are a fashion lover, you know this collection instantly. It is one of the most incredible Dior collections. It's something that is seared into my brain from being a little kid. You know, gowns in that collection are now displayed at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. And then another 10 years later, Louisa served as inspiration again for Galliano in his Autumn Winter 2007 collection for Dior, which was the Bal des Artistes au Couture collection, which is another just absolutely beautiful Galliano-Dior collection. And I will make sure I find some images of it because it is beyond spectacular. And not just Galliano for Dior, but the legendary Alexander McQueen, his spring-summer collection in 2007 was directly inspired by Louisa Casati as well. You also have the fashion house Marquesa, which is a British house, uh, but it's called Marquesa after Marquesa Louisa Casati. And then even into the 2000s, 2009, Karl Lagerfeld debuted a beautiful cruise wear collection in Venice, which was directly inspired by Casati. So for those that know fashion, for those that love fashion, Casati is everywhere. And then of course you have so many people drawing inspiration from the artwork and photography that Louisa Cassati modeled for. Uh, there's a really iconic Lady Gaga editorial in Italian Vogue that directly references Cassati. And then you've got people like Tilda Swinton, Patti Smith, you know, so many people have referenced Louisa. And let me just say, it is so incredibly frustrating to be speaking about a woman whose impact is just so visual. I'm very aware trying to get a sense of this woman just by listening to me speak about her does absolutely no justice. So you must, you must go and look for images of her. I will make sure I post a whole lot for you, but one way or another, please, please go and look at the art of Louisa. Go and look at the photographs taken of her. Louisa is profound in many ways, as she is one of the original muses. She was a muse to some of the greatest artists of all time. She was a champion of queer love and human rights. And also just as a woman truly beyond her time, who fought for the right to live independently on her own terms, as a woman who answered to no one but herself. And I'm just going to quickly read you a quote from a journalist, Elisabetta Pasca, which I think says it all much better than I ever could. Pasca writes, While the life and death of Louisa Casati may seem written from the parable, from altars to dust, it is not. Instead, her death is the final chapter of a life of freedom in every possible sense, even from the bonds of success. Louisa Casati mocked death making an everlasting masterpiece of herself sacrificing everything in the name of art for art's sake succeeding in scratching the cold space of eternity with her impetuous personality louisa Casati became the absolute icon of the belle epoch discoverer of talents while day after day she held her title as queen of salons and parties transforming the ephemeral into sublime and conquering crowds of artists who all competed to portray her. And there you have it. That is the tale of Marquesa Luisa Casati for you. Definitely not a super well-known figure for us English babies, but she is truly a muse of the ages, an icon of fashion and feminism. And I hope you enjoyed learning just a little bit about her. Like I said, if you want... To read more, please go and find the Infinite Variety book. It is truly spectacular. It is a really great read. And yeah, let me know your thoughts. Let me know your feelings, please. Rate and review the show if you're listening on Apple, if you're on Spotify, there is a little drop-down box in the show notes that says, what did you think of this episode? Feel free to tell me your thoughts and feelings or if you just want to write something great that you learned about Louisa Casati, I just would love to hear from you. That is our episode for today. Thank you so much everyone for spending this time with me. I hope you have a beautiful week ahead. I hope life is treating you well. I hope you are continuing to fight for peace and justice in the world. And I hope you're making time to devour some beautiful art and do things that make you happy. As always, and with so much love, pay for your porn. Don't fake your orgasms. And I will see you next Tuesday.